Good morning and welcome to Aletheia Church. Uh, it's good to see you this morning. Uh, my name is Kevin. I'm one of the pastors here. Uh, parents of elementary school age kids, if you wanted to, you may uh, dismiss your kids now to uh, the back double doors and uh, their teachers will take them off to their lesson and class time uh, this morning. Uh, for the rest of you guys, uh, you may go ahead and open up your Bibles to uh, John 17. That's where we're going to start this morning, but actually the majority of our time will actually be uh, in Psalm uh, 24. And before we uh, jump into that, um, over the course of the next four weeks, um, we're taking a, a break from the Gospel of John still, although we are in John this morning, as you saw, um, to uh, just touch on a, a, a vision series. And what I mean by that is I want to spend a few weeks uh, going over our values uh, here at Aletheia Church, um, explaining kind of what we care about, uh, why you may have noticed if you're newer, why we do some of the things we do the way uh, that we do them, and, and how the organizational structure of the church is centered on these core uh, distinctives. Um, it's been a few years since we've done this, so for those of you guys that were around, you know, three or four years ago when we did this, this, this might seem like some review to you, but we have a lot of new faces, and it's always good to kind of be just reminded of why are we here, what is God doing in us as a people, and what kind of makes Aletheia Church distinct as an expression of the kingdom of God here on earth here in Gainesville, Florida. And you know, here's the reality. It, it, it may seem kind of silly to do something like this. Every church has these. Some are spoken some are unspoken, uh, but I want to make sure that we as leaders have communicated these to you because uh, inevitably what ends up happening is um, we, we will get approached as elders or as pastors of the church about opportunities to do ministries or do various things, and one of the things that we're quick to do is kind of try to ascertain where inside of who God is calling us to be and who we are uh, does that fit, and if it doesn't, just saying, hey, that is not necessarily something we feel called to do, not that it's wrong or bad or are not good, but it's just not something we necessarily feel like God wants us to be doing in this given moment. And also to, to say to you, you know, about some of these various values, if that's not a value for you or something you dislike, Aletheia Church probably just is not going to be a great church home for you. Now, I don't think any of the things that we value are going to be uh, things that should push you away, uh, especially if you're a follower of Jesus, but it's still important that we point them out in the first place. So let me kind of go through those five values with you really quickly just to share with you what they are, and then we'll look at the first one this morning. So kind of, you'll see these on our website. If you hear me kind of give these, I'm not going to break them down for you right now. You can hop on our website at any time and kind of check out what these are. But the five kind of distinct values that we care about here at Aletheia are God's glory, the Bible, something we call gospel community, the everyday church, and something we describe as being beyond Aletheia when we talk about being on mission. And so this morning, we're going to be looking at that first value, which is God's glory. And it's important to understand whether you are a Christian in here this morning or not, that God's glory is the reason you exist. You don't have to recognize his existence. You don't have to believe in him. You don't have to follow him. But the mere fact that you are created glorifies your creator. Our, our basic definition of God's glory as a church and kind of how we want to interact with this idea and what we're doing is the following. We write each person 
And everything in the universe exists by the grace of God and for the glory of God. The Bible says that whether we are eating a steak or drinking a glass of water, we should do it with the glory of God in mind. In this, we are called to follow the example of Jesus who said that everything he did was to glorify the Father. He did this by completing the work that he was given to do. And as his followers, each of us has been put on this earth at a certain time and a certain place with certain giftings to bring glory to God in the same way that Jesus did. We strive to live with that same solitary focus as a church that Jesus had. And you probably saw in that passage that was just read for us in John chapter 17 that Jesus kind of gives us the foundation as to why we are here on earth, glorifying the Father just as he did. He says that he came to magnify the Father and he's now asking the Father to magnify him so that he may continue to make much of his heavenly Father and to display the beauty of God and what he's about to do. And this is really, really important. You know, so often, you know, I remember when I was younger, there were those famous um, uh, bracelets that people would wear and they had WWJD on them, what would Jesus do? And the answer to that question is always glorify his father. Everything that he did was to glorify the father. And so in any given situation, if we're seeking to be like Jesus, we're seeking to glorify our heavenly father. And this is important because if we forget this fact, we will lose the why of our existence and become focused on the wrong things. Many churches have come and gone and failed over the course of human history, not because of changes in culture or because they lost a pastor or because the preaching wasn't good enough or the music wasn't good enough. No, the primary reason churches die is because they lose the reason that they exist in the first place, which is for the glory of God. And this is really, really easy for us to do, not just as a church body or organization, but also personally. If you think about this for a moment, we live in a merit-based culture, society, or system, however you want to define it. School GPAs, college admissions, scholarships, internships, job applications, job interviews, job performance reviews, parenting, anything that you can think of, we are either being judged and scored by others, or judging and scoring ourselves along with others. And the reality of that is, first and foremost, very few of us ever measure up to the standard that we're often looking for. We're looking for someone to kind of push us along, even though we might not even necessarily meet that standard. And then, maybe to make matters worse, so often if you are a professing follower of Jesus in here this morning is we come into church, the one place that's supposed to be a place where we receive freedom from Christ and from that system that the world has in place. And instead, pastors like myself can just throw even more expectations on you. And the weight of that can often seem crippling. And here's why this is so insidious and dangerous. It's not just the fact that we live in this 
cultural moment or this societal system that is based upon merit in this way where we're constantly competing and trying to measure up in some way or another. That, that is problematic in and of itself. But if you dig deeper, what that type of system ends up creating is a bunch of narcissists who are constantly focused on their own place in comparison of others. And when that happens, you see the fracturing of relationships, of community. And in my opinion, one of the largest reasons we are facing a lot of the mental health crisis that you hear people talking about in our current age is because we as a people have lost our reason of why we are here in the first place. We think it's about us, and it's not. We think we're here for our own glory, and we're not. We think we matter way more than we do. And look, there, there's some reasons why we think this way. I remember as a kid, my teachers and my coaches and my parents are like, Kevin, you can be anything you want. Flat out lie. I am five, six, a buck 50 soaking wet. I wanted to be an NBA basketball player when I was a kid. A few laughed louder than others because they've seen me on the basketball court and realized how absurd that dream was. But like the smallest players in the NBA are like 6'4", a full foot taller than me. And those are the small guys, right? The average height is like 6'9 to 6'12", so seven feet. There you go. I can do math on the fly. But when you hear over and over again, you can be anything you want, you can do anything you want, right? We have this reinforced idea of how important we are. And hear me out. I'm not saying that you don't matter. The scriptures say that you were uniquely created and knitted in your mother's womb by God. You do matter to him. But that's been distorted into value of your life, and value unto God, and thinking that you are God, and that we're all just here for you. And listen, I am just as guilty of this as anybody else. Right, playing comparison, wanting my way, fighting for this. And the scriptures tell us that God will not share his glory with another. And so one of the reasons we care so deeply about this, because it seems kind of silly to say, hey, like our, our church is, is centered around God's glory and making much of him. That seems like it should be obvious, but it's so easy to lose. It's so easy to lose sight of. And so my prayer this morning is that we kind of move through Psalm 24, is that I won't bind you up with a list of do's and don'ts or whatever, but instead that I will present to you God as he is. And that we'll just worship him because he's worthy. And I love what Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 3, starting in verse 16. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. He's talking about our ability to see and understand why we have hope, how we approach life. Now the Lord is the Spirit. 
And where the Spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. And we all, with unveiled face, beholding the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another. For this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. Do you see what Paul's saying there? He says, if you want to experience true freedom in this life, it's not finding yourself and finding who you are and bringing as much glory to yourself as you possibly can. No, it's in knowing who your God is and beholding him with unveiled face. And as you do that, you are free. And by the way, that freedom is not a license to do whatever you want. No, but being free to being transformed into his image and likeness for you. See, we are free when we behold the glory of the Lord. And in beholding his glory, we are transformed by him. Transformed to live out the mission and vision that he gives us in the scriptures for what it means to be one of his followers. Not because we are under compulsion or because we're comparing ourselves to other Christians or because we have to be doing the right thing all the time. No, but we do it because we see the glory of God as so gripping and compelling that we can't help but respond to his glory by doing so. And so here's where I'm gonna take us today. We're gonna look at Psalm 24, and here is my prayer, is that we would see the beauty of our God and seek to live for his glory. So now I wanna start by just like giving, I know I gave you kind of our definition of the glory of God, but I just wanna take a step back and give a, a, a brief kind of introduction into this idea of what is the glory of God because if we're going to understand what David is telling us in Psalm 24 we're going to need to come to an understanding of what it is and how we see his glory and then also how we might display that and so John Piper defines the glory of God as this he says the glory of God is the manifest beauty of his holiness it is the going public of his holiness so it is basically God revealing himself to us. That, that is us seeing the glory of God. And in some ways, trying to define the glory of God is nearly impossible. I mean, how, how would one define something that is infinite? It's one of like the inter interesting conundrums of when we just start describing the deeper things of God doctrinally, once you start reading the scriptures and knowing what he says about himself, you eventually start getting to a place where we run out of adequate intelligence and words to actually be able to fully describe him. And for some people, that's a non-negotiable. They're like, well, if I can't fully know and understand God, I don't know how I can follow him. I actually find great comfort in that. I want to worship a God who is bigger than me, who is smarter than me, who is more powerful than me. Because I tried to be my own God for the first 20-some years of my life, and it didn't go that great. I'm looking for something outside of myself. I'm looking for the actual creator. And as Piper goes on to say in that definition, he says, God is in a class by himself. He has infinite perfections, infinite greatness, and infinite worth. This means that as God's people, if we are to experience the glory of God in any real and meaningful way, that we experience him by experiencing his perfect character, 
by experiencing and knowing his awesome power and by experiencing and knowing his holiness. And as we experience the splendor of God, you find that what Paul says in 1 Corinthians, excuse me, 2 Corinthians chapter 3 to be true. That you can't help but be gripped by his power and his goodness and his grand nature that you're led to ponder and worship him. And friends, that is what we want to be about. That is what we want to be about. Seeing and tasting and experiencing and declaring the glory of God to the world around us. And so Psalm 24 shows us three ways that we can see the glory of God and respond to it. The first one is in creation. The second one is in God's holiness. And the third one is in his son. So turn over to Psalm 24 with me. Let's look at the first two verses to start out as we see David kind of cry about how we see God's glory in creation. It says, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world and those who dwell therein. For he has founded it upon the seas and established it upon the rivers. Now, a couple of things I want you to see from these two verses as we start out. First is this. That's just basic definitions here, right? The earth belongs to God, okay? Seems common sense and simple enough, but it's some things that we need to make clear, right? Everything belongs to him. I know that you might own property somewhere, or you might have a house, right? Or nations declared to be sovereign over certain areas of certain continents. But at the end of the day, God declares, I own all of this. Every single bit of it, I own. It says that he has founded and established all of it. And because he created all of this, therefore, he is in charge and sovereign over all of it. Not only is he sovereign over all of it, but this also means that as we look at creation, it reveals to us in some ways, the beauty and glory of the creator. This would kind of be one of those times where theologians would describe being able to look into creation and seeing the glory of God in it as what they would term common grace. Common grace is just a theological term that talks about ways that God reveals himself to all people in all ways and loves on them and um, gives them something they do not deserve, even if they do not know him, follow him, and trust him. And God's revelation of himself to us through the means of creation is a means that anyone can see. And we see that God reveals his power and majesty to everyone simply through creation. The universe declares the glory of God to us. Pause with me for just a moment, and I want you to think. Whether you need to close your eyes to think, or whatever you need to do, but just consider this. Have you ever been to a really beautiful place, and were just had your breath taken away by looking out on it? 
a couple years ago, my wife and I were out in Colorado, and no offense, Florida, but way more beautiful state than what we've got going on here. And I remember as my, as my wife and I were um, whitewater rafting down this mountain that we were in, just having this spot that was like slower where we could just kind of sit and everyone was just kind of quiet. I just kind of had this moment. I looked out on the hill and there were um, some wild animals up on the, the mountainside and you looked on one mountain and there was one type of topography and you looked on another mountain and there was a different type of topography and there was just so much going on. I'm like, who could think this is random? Who could all think that this is all just happenstance? And I remember just being overwhelmed by what I was taking in as I was looking out on this. And here's the thing about being confronted with the beauty of creation. See, because creation communicates to us the beauty of our creator, what often happens is when you find yourself amongst that beauty, you find your soul crying out for more. But what it's crying out for is not more of creation. It's actually crying out for the creator of it all. Experiences like this cause us to long for God. But here's the thing. Going to the Grand Canyon, or for me spending time in Colorado and seeing that topography, won't solve that longing. See, because God has revealed himself in a greater way than just creation. And as he displays his glory to his people, he expects them to respond and worship. But so often what we end up doing is we look out to that beauty and creation and we choose to worship it rather than him. Paul says in the book of Romans that mankind's problem is that they exchange the glory of God for, the corru- for corrupted human images that they worship the creation rather than the creator. And that can manifest itself in so many different ways, but the way it usually manifests itself is in self-worship and self-love. Because you are created. And in being created by God, you have inherent dignity, value, and worth, but are not meant to be worshiped. And so God reveals his glory to us in creation, so not that we would worship creation, but that we would long for him in seeing the vastness of his beauty in creation as he is sovereign over all things. And when we see God's glory, his power, and his majesty, you want more. Now, not only does God display his glory to us in his creation, but he also does it in his holiness. Look at what David says next in verses 3 through 6 of Psalm 24. He says, who shall ascend the hill of the Lord? And who shall stand in his holy place? He who has clean hands and a pure heart. Who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. He will receive blessing from the Lord and righteousness from the God of his salvation. Such is the generation of those who seek him. Who seek the face of the God of Jacob. 
These verses show us another way in which God declares his glory to his people, and that is his moral goodness, or what we would describe as his holiness. Look at what David says in verse 3. He says, Who shall ascend the hill of the Lord, and who shall stand in his holy place? Goes on to say in verse 4, He who has clean hands, he who has a pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false or do what or does not swear deceitfully. So let me let me translate that for you. No one. Right? Who who can stand on the hill of the Lord? No one. Because we're looking for someone that has clean hands. We're looking for someone who has a pure heart, who does not lift up his soul to what is false and does not swear deceitfully. None of us, no one in this room this morning meets that description. Right, the description that we get of God here by David is God is so perfect and so good that no one could ever ascend into his presence. And he goes on to say to us, if someone does follow God and follow after his ways, they receive blessing and righteousness from the God of their salvation who seek his face. I think there is something that is maybe lost in our current cultural moment about who God is and who we are. Because I I think, and I, I appreciate this, you know, maybe 150, 100 years ago, the church's kind of way of describing God to the world around them and calling people to follow after him was what we would define as this idea of like hellfire and brimstone. Like it was very fear-based and here's what will happen to you if you don't follow God because God is holy and righteous and you're not and you're going straight to hell. And we, we, some of those people still like to set up on Turlington Plaza during the semester, right? But that, that is a very kind of older or might, might describe like outdated way that the vast majority of the church communicates how one responds to God. And what has kind of come of that in response to that kind of method of describing who God is, is God's love and care for everyone, which is true, right? I mean, I remember in college, right after becoming a follower of Jesus, like, really common for people to wear these shirts that says, Jesus is my homeboy. He looked like Lonnie Frisbee. Half of you guys have no idea who I'm talking about right now, right? And so, and, and what kind of comes of these ideas, though, is in the old way of looking at God and seeing at him, you see God as kind of this harsh, rough, perfect, but kind of almost like angry taskmaster who's on you for everything that you do wrong. And in the way that we kind of tend to describe God now and talk about his love and his grace and the beauty of the gospel, which is true, again, right? We tend to have this view of God as he's just one of the boys ready to hang out with you at any given moment. And the reality is this. God is holy and we are not. I mean, David asks those questions in verse 3 almost rhetorically. Right? He, he knows of God's holiness. 
he knows that he, a man after God's own heart, doesn't measure up. And you may be sitting there saying to yourself, well, this seems kind of harsh. If God is holy and is, is all good and all knowing and God's glory is manifested in his holiness, does that mean that I cannot have anything to do with him? And before I answer that question, the answer to begin with is yes. Guys, God hates sin. He hates it. I know that's not popular in our current day and age where we champion in culture, be yourself, be your best you. Your best you is not good enough. It might be to be the boss at your office. It might be to be a good friend. Heck, it might even be enough to let you be president of the United States. It will not allow you to ascend the hill of the Lord. I mean, we talked about this a little bit last week, and if you weren't here last week, you can go back and listen to the sermon. The idea of God's holiness is something that you can't even really grasp or get your mind around. If you want a book on that, R.C. Sproul has a great book on it called The Holiness of God. And because you and I are sinners born this way, and by the way, the Bible teaches that. I'm not going to go on de- into depth on that this morning, but we are born in rebellion towards God. And by the way, if you don't agree with me, one, study the scriptures, but two, just find some of the parents around here with like toddler age children and just ask if you can watch them for a day while, while they get to go have a date. You will realize very quickly that original sin is a real thing. I've made the statement from the stage before, no one taught my kids how to misbehave. Like they were born ready to do it. Now they had to get a little bit older before they could start successfully doing it, but once they got older, they were ready. They were fully ready. Because we're all born sinners. And because God is holy, His moral good displays his glory to us that we are not like him. That he is perfect and we are not. And what that should awaken in us is worship. That God is what we cannot be. And God desires that his people display that same moral goodness to the world around them. This means to truly experience God's holiness on another level. To see his glory and to partake and enjoy in it means we seek him in his word to learn who he is, to learn what he's done, to see how he acts. And then from that, seek to obey and follow after him. Do you know that obedience actually allows us to experience God's goodness? When we obey, we get to see, oh yeah, God was right. Yeah, I was actually wrong about that one. God knew better than me. 
which by the way, he always does. This means that if we are to be a church after God's glory, we seek to encourage one another to obey him. This means you show up here and you seek to be known by others. You seek to know God more with others. It means that we're really, really intentional about the way we've designed gospel communities, the way we've designed Sunday mornings. There is a reason why we take communion here every Sunday to respond to the word of God. It's so that we might understand and recognize the holiness of God, recognize our failure in meeting that, and then worship God because Christ died in our place and we can still come to him. And we do that together because we want to remind one another of that good news. Hey, we're all a failure. Jesus died for us and rose again anyway. That's the good news. The good news doesn't involve you. It involves everything Jesus did for you. And we come to remind one another because if we don't gather with one another and encourage one another in these ways, the world is not going to encourage you to do it. I have never once watched CNN, Fox News, ESPN, NBC, Dateline, and thought, I want to worship God more now. Not once. Not once have have any of those things ever been like, look at the holiness of God, look at how you don't measure up to it, and look at what Christ has done on your behalf. But you know who does do that? You. The people of God encouraging one another forward in obedience towards him. And so we see God's glory and creation, and it should cause us to respond in worship. We see God's glory and his moral good revealed to us in his word, and we respond to it in obedience and worship with his people. And lastly, God displays his glory through his son. Look at verses 7 through 10 with me. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord, strong and mighty. The Lord, mighty in battle. Lift up your heads, O gates, and lift them up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. Who is this king of glory? The Lord of hosts. He is the king of glory. I love these verses. There have been hymns and worship songs written just off of these verses alone. I mean, look at the text. This is a processional song. For those of you guys that were around with us back in the fall when we were going through John's gospel and we got to uh, Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, you might be making some connections already. Right? But in this processional song, David is, is singing and he's crying about, out about God's glory and he's singing about a king that arrives at the gates of Jerusalem. And as the king arrives anywhere in ancient Israel there would be someone who would be called a herald or an announcer that would go before the army and the king. And so here the king is returning to Jerusalem, and as the, the, 
the herald or the announcer is going before the army, he cries out, lift up your head, O gates. And there would be people at the gates waiting for the arrival and the return of the king. And they respond, who is this king of glory? Now, it seems a little odd, right? Because if David was talking about himself, they would have known. Like, oh, David's back. Like, praise God, David's, David has returned. But they cry out, who is this king of glory? And the herald, before the king, cries out, it's the Lord, strong and mighty. And the gatekeepers respond again, who? Who is this king of glory? And the herald responds, the Lord of hosts, he is the king of glory. The, the picture we're getting from David here of this king who has returned to Jerusalem is greater than any other king Israel has ever had. That this king is God himself in the flesh. And so as David writes this psalm, he says we see God's glory in so many places. We see it in creation. We see it in his law and in his moral perfection and his holiness. And we see God's glory in this king who has come to Jerusalem, which if you are an, a, an Israelite in the first century, you're like, who is this? Who is this king? Who is this king of glory? And the answer is given to us in Hebrews chapter 1. The author of Hebrews says this, Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom also, he created the world. You seen this so far? His son created the world. His son is the heir of all things. Look at this in verse 3. He, talking about Jesus, he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. Who is this king of glory? It's Jesus. David is singing about Jesus' arrival to Jerusalem. And, and look at the author of Hebrews and what he tells us about Jesus. Emmanuel, God with us. He says that God the Father has spoken to us by his Son, through whom he also created the world, that Jesus not only revealed the Father to us fully, but he also created the world that we now live in. That Jesus is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. And I love this line. He upholds the universe by the word of his power. I mean, just think about that for a minute. 
Our galaxy right now is being held together by the words of Jesus Christ. Can you fathom that? He goes on to say that this king, this king who upholds the universe by the word of his power, made purification for sins. Guys, that's the gospel. Right? Because when that king triumphantly entered Jerusalem, he wasn't going to establish a military kingdom. No, he was going to lay down his life for the sins of wicked men and women. He willingly went to his death on a cross to save us. But death could not hold him because three days later, he rose from the dead. And as the author of Hebrews says, he is now sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, superior to even angels, ruling and reigning. And friends, this is why if you've spent any time at Aletheia Church and you're like, man, they talk about Jesus a lot there. Yes, I've got nothing else to offer you. Because the glory of God ultimately finds itself in him. And if we are going to be about the glory of God, we are about Jesus. Because he is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature. It's all about Jesus. For without him, there is no other way to the Father. There is no purification for sins. There is no upholding of the universe by the word of his power. The glory of God is found in Jesus Christ. And we are called to respond to him the same way the people at the gate were. Lift up your heads, O gates, and be lifted up, O ancient doors, that the king of glory may come in. The call to you this morning, whether you are a Christian and have been for years, or you're here this morning because someone made you come, or you're curious, or you're still holding on to your New Year's resolution, the call of your life is to make much of God in your creator. It is what you were created for in the first place. You are here and you have a purpose and that purpose is that you bear the image and likeness of your creator and are to worship him and make much of him. And that is ultimately done by surrendering to Jesus as Lord, King, and Savior. You look up to him, know him, and worship him. It's the whole reason we gather and as we respond to this, this king, as you behold him and see who he is, you will want to worship him. I remember when I was in college, and I was basically doing all the things that I thought you were supposed to do as someone in your late teens and early 20s to be enjoying the good life. I was partying, I was a part of hookup culture. I was going to class when I felt like it. 
of making friends and having a good time. And the weight of emptiness that I felt on a soul level, I cannot even begin to describe to you. And some of you guys know this story. My sister met Jesus her first semester at college, and she would not shut up about him. And then, because my sister and I were kind of close, right, I, when I would hang out with her, she would have these other friends around her, and they wouldn't shut up about Jesus either. They're just like, man, like, Jesus is the best. I'm like, you guys are weird. Like, what, do, like, what are you doing? Like, what is wrong with you? And so, a mixture of curiosity and appeasing my sister, I agreed to go to church with her. And as I was there, right, this guy got up on the, the stage and opened up the Bible and just started teaching from it and telling us about who God is and what God has done for me. And for the first time in my life, I heard the beauty of who Jesus of Nazareth really was. And over the course of the next several months, I kept going back to church, and I asked my mom, who was a Christian, to buy a Bible for me, and she bought one for me, and I started reading the Bible, and I just became just enamored by Jesus. I'm like, who is this guy? There's no one like him. I mean, if you've ever read the Gospels, say what you want, right? But seeing the way that Jesus interacts with other people, I'm like, man, why can't I do that? He's patient when he should be patient. He's compassionate when he should be compassionate. He's firm when he should be firm. He's loving when he should be loving. He he has this ability to meet people where they're at. Things that I wish I could do. I'm like, man, this guy is the best. And eventually, I found like, I want to follow him. I want to follow this guy. And the the fascinating thing is, is, is right before the beginning of my junior year of college, I had this moment where like, I just realized that following Jesus mean I actually needed to die to self and live to him. Long story, but basically, just I'll, I'll give you the brief summary. I showed up at church one Sunday morning, read Matthew chapter 18, and ended up sobbing uncontrollably as I read the scripture there. Because it was the first time I'd ever read it. They were talking about the parable of the unforgiving servant, and I'm like, crap, that's me. That, that was written for me. I don't know who else it was written for, but it was definitely written for me. And I'm like sitting there sobbing in chair. The, the poor people that were a couple seats down from me are like, what is wrong with this guy? Like church hasn't even started yet. And that was it. Like God radically transformed my life in that moment. And I can, I can tell you this. And for those of you that know Jesus and walk with him, you know this to be true. My life was forever changed. I didn't even, I didn't even ask for it to be. I didn't know what I was getting into. I'd led one of my roommate's friends to Christ a week and a half later, and I still to this day have no idea what I said to him. No. It's like, it was like asking a two-year-old for advice on how to buy a home. I had no clue what was going on. And my, my roommate found out that I was a Christian. He's like, oh, I think my friend's interested in becoming a Christian. Will you talk to him? Yeah, sure. I was so dumb. I was so dumb, I didn't even know that I shouldn't be talking to him yet because I didn't know. Right, That is the type of transformation that occurs as we behold the glory of God in Jesus Christ. And that is why we exist. 
to behold the glory of God in creation, to behold it in his holiness, and to seek him in obedience, and to worship Jesus, the King of glory. When we gather on Sundays, when we sing together, when we pray together, when we take the Lord's Supper together, when we gather in our gospel communities throughout the week, when we read our Bibles, when we listen to worship music, and anything else that we could come up with as a list of do's as Christians, none of that is to just check off a list. It's to behold the beauty and glory of God and worship. And in that beauty, and in beholding the glory of God, we are transformed. Being made into the image and likeness, not of, our, not of your best you, but of your Savior, your King, the one who died for you and rose again. And when we gather together on Sundays to behold the beauty of Jesus and to declare the glory of our God and Father, we leave here going into the world as the church desiring that everyone around us would behold that glory as well. Because God is worthy of all honor and praise. Bringing glory to God is our life's calling as disciples of Jesus. And that's what we're going to be about together.